Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And today we are rejoined by Mr. Jim Radloff, who was last with us when we were discussing Avengers number 4. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you for having me back. Oh, glad to have you back. Now, this week we're discussing something a little bit different. We are looking at Marvel Zombies, the original miniseries, and one of the few stories that happens somewhat outside the continuity of the standard or 616 Marvel Universe, at least prior to the new Secret Wars miniseries. We'll see what Earth number we have coming out of that one. So just to get the technical details out of the way, this five-issue miniseries was written by Robert Kirkman with art or pencils and inks by Sean Phillips. Colors by June Chung, letters by Randy Gentile, editors Nicole Wiley as an assistant editor, John Barber as an assistant editor, Ralph Macchio as the editor, and Joe Casada editor-in-chief, with cover dates ranging from February 2006 to June 2006, and release dates ranging from December 7, 2005 to April 5, 2006. It came in at number 60 in this countdown. Okay, alright, so technical details out of the way, we'll move into... Basically what the mini-series is all about, personal histories with it, impact it had on the industry, plot synopsis, and so forth. So, Jim, why don't you let us know how you first ran across this particular mini-series? Well, this came out during the sort of lull that I had where I wasn't actually reading a whole lot regularly, but I was actually introduced to it because I picked up one of the sequel shorter stories, Dead Days. I found... uh, shortly after this came out, and I went back and got the trade paperback. Okay. Yeah, this is another one of the ones that I was aware of it when it was coming out. It came out when I was reading. I'd read the Ultimate Fantastic Four story arc that it spun out of, but I quite deliberately chose not to get it. I am, by and large, not a zombie fan. Kirkman has talked about how he created The Walking Dead, which went into publication about two and a half years before this did, because... You know, at the end of the zombie movies, he was always left wanting more. Whereas I'm the kind of guy, I could be watching, you know, Night of the Living Dead, which is one of the apparent pinnacles of the zombie genre. When I watched that, I found myself checking my watch every five or six minutes to try and figure out how much was left. Zombies just don't appeal to me, so I read it through Marvel Digital Unlimited, specifically for this podcast. And from there, well, might as well do a a brief plot synopsis of these five issues. Mm Mm-hmm. This does take place after the Ultimate Fantastic Four arc and even kind of name-checks that. At one point, the Spider-Man of this universe, Earth-2149, makes a note that their Fantastic Four have traveled to some alternate dimension, so they're unavailable to help with this you know, new large-scale thing that's been going on around them. And in this universe, pretty much all the super people have become these zombies who feel this overwhelming desire to consume flesh. Not each other's flesh, because apparently they taste terrible, but they have apparently eaten every normal human on the planet that they could find. There are few, if any, left. There's a couple being bled by Magneto as the resistance, but they are now outnumbered by the zombies. And anyone who understands biology knows what happens to a food chain when the predators outnumber the prey. And there's enough guys such as the aforementioned Spider-Man, Iron Man, Hank Pym, the Wasp, Captain America... There's enough intelligent people in this zombie form to know that they need to make some long-term changes and find food elsewhere. And they're just trying to figure out how to do that. 
when they meet the Silver Surfer for the first time. So apparently in this parallel universe, the Surfer is still a Herald of Galactus. He just appears at Earth a little bit later in the timeline, since we have characters like Luke Cage, as he appeared in the 70s. Others like that. So the first coming of Galactus was later in this timeline. Not being a major Avengers reader over the years, uh, I was also trying to figure out whether that was Iron Man's armor from the 70s or from the 80s. It does appear to be the, the armor sort of from the, the late 60s and 70s. The timelines don't mesh completely, because that armor that we see here, where he's got almost the V-neck design on the top of the mm -hmm. mask, he had actually stopped using that armor before Luke Cage's first appearance. Yeah. Well, and the timeline does have other differences, too. Like, uh, Colonel America is the one who is leading the Avengers through most of this, and he's uh, he mentions that at one point he was president, but he didn't serve a full term. Yeah, and this is prior to the Ultimate Universe storyline where that Captain America actually did become president. So, so it's, Kirkman does a nice job of keeping it familiar and yet throwing in enough tidbits that absolutely positively must be different that we know it's an alternate Earth and you don't have to worry about where it fits in the timeline because it doesn't fit in the 616 timeline. You know, if anything, you could see where people are in their personal histories, but those personal histories don't line up with the major histories. In any event, the... Basic plot synopsis beyond the coming of the Silver Surfer is that Galactus is coming, and we get to essentially see who's hungrier and who's more driven here. We eventually learn that the supervillains have also banded together under this virus, and they sort of form their own team. Hank Pym has been keeping the Black Panther alive to eat him a piece at a time so he can focus, and there are comments about how he likes to think that, you know, he'd volunteer for it if he gave him the choice, but he's not going to reduce the senators long enough to find out what's going on. And as they're going, the zombies actually manage to eat the Silver Surfer himself, with a lot of help from the zombie Hulk, and use that acquired cosmic power to take down Galactus. And instead of converting him into a zombie, they just absorb his power and become almost like the new Galactus of their Marvel Universe. So did that plot synopsis miss any key points as far as you're concerned, Jim? Not any real key stuff. I had, like I said, written down a whole lot more just in case we wanted to discuss it, but there's quite a bit that you can go in just by the questions that it raises about Kirkman did a very different type of zombies here and than most other media shows them as and I had noted down a couple different ways that they're well different which is I think it's a necessity because in the story the zombies themselves are the main characters and yeah. some of that was established in the Mark Miller arc on Ultimate Fantastic Four where the zombies were capable of having very high-level conversations, and there Reed Richards was about as intelligent as the ones in the 616 universe. So some of that was carryover, but it's Kirkman who really established how these zombies work and kicked off, actually, what became a pretty recurring line in the Marvel Universe. I think these guys have had, ultimately, about five full-scale miniseries plus a few one-shots. Yeah, they've had... If I can pull it up here... I actually, other than the one-shots and one... I think miniseries where they were crossed over with the Marvel Apes. I think I actually have all of the crossovers. Let's see, it was Ultimate Fantastic Four. Uh, the first crossover was called Crossover, and then a couple years later they came back for issues 30 through 30. Well, it's either 30 through 32 or 31 through 32. That was a storyline called Frightful, where the Fantastic Four zombies kind of broke out. They also had... Dead Days, Marvel Zombies 2, uh, Marvel Zombies vs. Army of Darkness, which was, quite frankly, my favorite. 
Marvel Zombies 3, 4, Marvel Zombies The Return, Marvel Zombies Evil Evolution, which was a one-shot crossover with the apes, Marvel Zombies 5, Marvel Zombies Supreme, which was a different group of zombies recreating the Squadron Supreme, Marvel Zombies Destroy, which was armor going to an alternate reality where zombies had been used by the Nazis to win World War II, and uh, they're going to be revisited in Secret Wars this summer. Okay. My database is also showing Marvel Zombies Christmas Carol and Marvel Zombies Halloween as entries that are on uh, Marvel Digital Unlimited. Yep, those are ones that are not necessarily set in the zombie universe. They look like it, but there are different versions that contradict or it might just be different timeline timeline things. Like at the time Marvel Zombies Halloween came out, Kitty Pride had already been established as being dead in the zombie universe as of, I believe... Marvel Zombies The Return, but she is alive and has a child, a fairly young child, in Marvel Zombies Halloween. Okay. All right. So apparently our alternate universe zombies have their own ultimate or alternate universe thing going on. Yeah, they actually pop up in quite a few universes, but we're only here to talk about the one miniseries today. You can get back into it later if you'd like, though, because I think that's going to be part of how it ended at this point in the countdown. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So when you get into that, that... Kind of was the impact on the industry. This spun out from Ultimate Fantastic Four and launched. It was almost an imprint of itself. I mean, we've heard the number of miniseries and specials that this has had in the past 10 years since it's been created. So we're looking at, you know, every, what, 18 to 20 months, there's a new title launching, and many of which last. So that's pretty on average, I'd say about there's another Marvel Zombies comic on the shelves every other month since this came out. I mean, obviously... One of many services running, it'll be six months on, six months off, that kind of thing. But, you know, if you're a fan of the zombies, you'll get your fix. And I believe there's only one of these that actually had any crossover with the 616 universe itself. So for the most part, it's been sort of out of continuity. So if you're just interested in the zombies, you can pick up the zombies titles, and you can ignore everything else that's happening in the Marvel Universe. So if you have the inclination, this could potentially be a jumping-on point for you. And at times it does serve to scratch itches for other characters you may either like in the 616 or miss from the 616. Uh, some of the fun cameos they have are in the Army of Darkness crossover. There's a brief cameo of, I believe, one page by Next Wave. Okay. And they are drawn and described in basically the same style as they are in their own series, complete with the description of them as something to the effect of five rogue pirates who are about to be dispatched in the most humiliating way possible as they are about to be beaten by the zombie power pack. Okay. You mentioned the crossovers with other, or with the main 616 continuity. Um, uh, Deadpool, which I believe is supposed to be the Deadpool from the 616 continuity, uh, encounters the head of zombie Deadpool when he comes over to the 616 universe, and his body is destroyed and becomes a literal wor- Merc with a Mouth, and that is the subject of the Merc with the Mouth limited series, or a, I don't know whether to call it a mini-series or a limited series. It only ran for, like, 12 issues or so. Yeah, it was announced as an ongoing following his popularity in X-Men Origins Wolverine. I think at that time, Deadpool had three books. There was the Merc with the Mouse series, there was the main Deadpool series, and there was the Deadpool team-up series. And Deadpool Core did end up coming yeah. out of that as they went around to different realities to recruit other Deadpools. Yeah, it's, at the time... Deadpool appeared to be a rising star, but 
Sadly, Ryan Reynolds played Deadpool well, even though he was supposed to be playing Wade Wilson. Somebody else played <laughs> Deadpool in that film, but yeah. When he's really the only redeeming factor of the movie, it doesn't guarantee long-term Deadpool sales. Which can be especially a problem when I'm really not a fan of Ryan Reynolds to start with, so... He's found his niche. He has if that audience, movie didn't so. happen anymore, we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. All right, which is a good thing. Probably the best thing about Days of Future Past is those two terrible movies? Yeah, they didn't happen. All right, so I mean, we've covered a bit of the plot synopsis and how these are different from other zombies because they're not just the mindless drones, but they can actually... They, they can think for themselves, but the hungrier they get, the greater the drive to do that. That actually came out of sort of a... um When they first pitched the idea, Kirkman says in the trade paperback that this wasn't even the original idea for the story. A couple of the other earlier ideas he claims to have, or that one of them was going to be Hawkeye being sort of one of the only surviving uninfected people and taking a Quinjet to escape the zombies, going to Antarctica and later being found and having to flee again, but there's not a whole lot he could do with that. And they later used that in Marvel Universe versus the Avengers, sort of. Another idea was uh, Luke Cage being more or less immune to the infection and the zombies having just enough intelligence that they can sort of blackmail him where they have his daughter. And in exchange for the safety of his daughter, he goes around apparently trying to find other survivors, but really leading the zombies to survivors so that they have a steady food supply. And in exchange, his daughter is kept safe and sort of. Out of that, they got the idea of, well, what if the zombies were intelligent and we could actually make the zombies the main characters? Yeah, which I think is probably one of the, the best ideas that they had putting this together. Yeah, because it, it goes from just being, a, wouldn't it be, wouldn't zombies be even scarier if they had superpowers to sort of, a in many ways, a character building of some of the characters that we already know? Spider-Man acknowledges that two of the first people he... Eight and in, if you see Dead Day or read Dead Days, they actually were the first two people that he ate were Mary Jane and Aunt May. And when he has his lucid moments, they sort of regain their senses after they've fed. And when when he is lucid, he is just consumed with the guilt of what he's done to the point where at one point in issue four. He's playing Go Fish with Luke Cage while the others are doing their thing. And Luke Cage asks him why he's still wearing the mask, even though he's really got no secret identity to protect anymore. And Spider-Man says that after what he's done, he doesn't think he could look himself in the mirror and doesn't want to risk it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kirkman really does show that he's got a good handle on these characters and understands them well. One of my favorite works by Kirkman is his 25-issue run on Marvel Team-Up, which, you know, he did launched it with Spider-Man as a member of the group, but rotated through pretty much everyone he can get in the Marvel Universe. He's got a very good grasp of these characters. Mm -hmm. And even though he's said some rather unpleasant things about work for hire, which I don't... Yeah, I don't know that it's really appropriate to get into the, that, aside from what that means is a lot of these later miniseries were not written by Kirkman. Because <laughs> at that point, Walking Dead and Invincible had both hit huge, and he decided he didn't need work for hire anymore, and then decided, well, nobody needs work for hire anymore. Abandon Marvel and DC and just do your own thing. Which, I don't know, to me that seems short-sighted. I will openly admit the only reason I gave Invincible a chance is because of Kirkman's work in the Marvel Universe. And his work on Ultimate X-Men, on Marvel Team-Up, you know, which is what a lot of the other creators say. It's 
working for the mainstream companies is a good way to build an audience who will then carry over so that when you're doing the independent work, it sells enough to pay the bloody bills. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, a separate debate for another day. Yeah. But you're saying he does have a good grasp on the characters. Uh, one of the things that I find kind of interesting is that he doesn't just pull the main roster, if you will, of Avengers. It is mostly Avengers or Avengers camp characters that appear in here, but you do see, you know, the story begins with Magneto facing Spider-Man, Daredevil, Thor, Moon Knight, Giant Man, Luke Cage, Colonel America, Angel, and Wolverine, with other ones being visible in the background, but really hard to distinguish. And part of that seems to be just so they have people to lose over the course of the fight and that the consequences that some of them face aren't around at the very end. Like, Daredevil has a steel girder sent through his chest and it removes his heart, but that doesn't keep him around in the sequels because, spoiler alert, Daredevil doesn't make it out of this. fact about, I want to say, three-quarters of the zombies you see and hear in this story don't make it out. Yeah, that sounds about right. We've got a number. I mean, if I run through, I catalog these in my database as I'm putting them together for this podcast. And the characters I was able to identify in this include a lot you've already mentioned, Angel, Colonel America, Cyclops, Daredevil, Giant Man, Hawkeye, Hulk, Magneto, Moon Knight, Nighthawk, Nova, Power Man, Shang-Chi, Silver Surfer, Spider-Man, Thor, Wasp, and Wolverine. And that's issue one. If we continue to the later issues, on top of those guys, we've got, as we said, Black Panther, although he's not a zombie, Sabra, Sunfire, Doctor Doom, Silver Samurai, Captain Marvel, Vulture, Hercules, Moon Dragon, Black Widow, Quicksilver, Iron Fist, Scarlet Witch, Submariner, Storm, Beast, Falcon, Blade, Crystal, the Red Guardian, Gorgon, Prowler. He's got a lot of characters from these. Gambit shows up eventually. Ghost Rider shows up eventually. Speedball. And part of it for me was uh, just trying to see who I recognized was a lot of fun. Like Sabra, did you say was in there? Yep. Was she uh, the one that was in the Serengeti around the looked like just mauled people or? Because there's the page where the surfer is just looking around at the world, and there's Captain Britain, someone I don't really recognize, Doctor Doom, someone I think might be Sif, but I'm not positive, someone who vaguely looks like a Crimson Dynamo type, but he's green, and then Sunfire and Silver Samurai. Yeah, the green guy would be Titanium Man, but yeah, it's she's one of the ones in those spreads where okay. they've got, as the Silver Surfer is going through the world, we've got a lot of the international heroes appearing in various armors, so they consciously went out and mined the superpowers from around the world. And Magneto appears to be the only superpowered individual, aside from Black Panther, who was able to resist. And the Black Panther didn't so much successfully resist prior to this miniseries. He was just captured and preserved so that Hank Pym could rip pieces off once in a while and have moments of lucidity so he can think and plan. So yeah, he does... Some of them he's just kind of touching on these international characters. Some of them I don't know how much is... You know, with a lot of these background characters, maybe those are coming from Kirkman. Maybe Kirkman is just telling Phillips or Sean Phillips, draw the characters you want to draw. Go nuts. It wouldn't surprise me if part of the reason we've got inconsistent costumes in the timeline is because they just told Sean Phillips, yeah, we're doing our own timeline thing. Draw the versions of these characters that you wanted to draw. Draw your favorites. That should be why, you know, Iron Man's armor is out of sync with Iron or with uh, Power Man's getup, because Iron Man had abandoned that armor before he 
kind of accidentally or inadvertently co-created Power Man. <laughs> so, but this series does have a lot of characters and even more on the, the covers. I think it was, uh, Arthur Swedam who did the covers. I hope I pronounced that correctly for the series. And pretty much all of them came out in variants and there's homages to classic covers where they've redrawn things like Uncanny X-Men number one before it was called Uncanny painted in the zombie style. Yeah, I've actually, um, there's a reference of the covers in the back of the trade paperback. They've got Amazing Fantasy 15, Spider-Man, non-adjectival version number one, Amazing Spider-Man number 50, Incredible Hulk number one, Avengers number four, Incredible Hulk number 340, Daredevil number 179, X-Men, what would become Uncanny number one, as you said, Amazing Spider-Man number 39, Amazing Spider-Man Annual, the wedding issue. Sorry, Annual 21, which was the wedding issue. Silver Surfer, number one. Fantastic Four, number one. Fantastic Four, number 51. Fantastic Four, number eight. And Secret Wars, number one. Being used between the miniseries, the variants of the miniseries. Uh, Fantastic Four, number eight, was the inspiration for Ultimate Fantastic Four, number 32. And then a bunch of the references used... um. References to the series use the Secret Wars cover. Yeah. And, and the cover of the trade paperback, if I remember correctly, is actually from um, one of the later series. Uh, it, the trade paperback has the, a parody of uh, the Demon in the Bottle Iron Man cover. That cover was actually commissioned for uh, the hardcover. Okay. So it is unique to the collected edition. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because the ones we have here, they're definitely going back and redoing the classic covers in homage. And that continues through Marvel Zombies 2 and the other series where we've got, you know, the Nick Fury cover, the one that was included on the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. trade paperback collecting the Strange Tales stories, even though it wasn't a Strange Tales cover. There's, if, if you look at those iconic covers, if there are Marvel covers, they've probably been spoofed on Marvel Zombies at some point. And that really helped get Arthur Suidam into cover work in general. He's done a lot before and after these, but primarily after. Yeah, and they've actually done so many different covers that as I look at the inside of the trade paperback, they actually have a Marvel Zombies The Covers hardcover for sale. I think that one's around the, it's about a 50-pager, but it's available. So I don't know if there's much more to say about the plot synopsis here. A lot of it is just establishing the way this works, establishing the characters. We get some character moments like Hank Pym's logic in keeping Black Panther alive. We see some of Iron Man and how... You know, he's staying intelligent even when he's hungry. He's deduced that this other team has actually eaten, even though they claim they haven't. So it's a good grasp on the characters, but this is a story designed to entertain. You can pull things about the characters out of it, but it's not marking a major continuity milestone. At the time this was written, there was no intention of bringing these Marvels into the 616 Marvel Universe. Well, if I remember correctly, at the time, there was no intention of having any crossover with the Ultimate and main 616 universe either and this was actually to my knowledge the first real crossover between the two when the zombie universe crossed over into the 616 after having originated in the ultimates Mm -hmm. i think was the first actual crossover between the two yeah up till that point they had essentially been claiming that they were when the ultimate universe first launched they were you know some guys at marvel editorial not all of them but some are even saying that the Ultimate Universe was a different multiverse, so crossovers would not be possible. Joe Casada and Brian Bendis both said that, you know, at one point, if you see them cross over, they're out of ideas. And then we'd already seen them cross over with the Max Supreme Power Universe in Ultimate Power. But the first 
story that connected the dots between them was the Marvel Zombies miniseries where they hit the 616. And then Spider-Man by Brian Bendis, who'd said previously that we were officially out of ideas, was the second. Although, I don't know, Spider-Man didn't feel to me like they were officially out of ideas. It felt like because they had Miles Morales as a Spider-Man, they had the opportunity to tell a story that couldn't really be told another way. I would say they crossed over just because up to that point, they didn't have an idea that was good enough to warrant that. They were trying to keep the universes distinct. But yeah, they're not going to be distinct much longer. As we know in the upcoming Secret Wars, if listeners aren't terribly aware of what's happening in Marvel now, the summer event of 2015 is Secret Wars, where the entire Marvel multiverse gets collapsed into one universe, which is Battle World. And Marvel has said that during the course of this miniseries, that's going to be the only Marvel world that's existed. Someone or something has actually assembled a planet out of pieces of various universes and various timelines. I'm expecting that when the miniseries ends and the event is over, we're going to have one streamlined universe with a fairly recognizable Earth, but with characters from multiple universes populating it. So, you know, I think we're going to have two Spider-Men, with Peter Parker and Miles Morales both running around. Yeah, I believe they, was on either one of the writers or one of the editors said that there are only two people they will guarantee are going to make it out of this, and that those are uh, Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy, Spider... Spider-Gwen. Yeah, which is kind of funny when you consider it means Gwen Stacy is one of the only ones guaranteed to live and not die. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out, but that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah. So this, one of the things that we like to do is examine this for any deeper meanings like they do on Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast in this segment that I blatantly stole from them. So are there any morals, messages, or meanings in this that you can see or... The main thing that I kind of see with this is addiction. All of these characters are sort of infected with this disease, but it, the way they talk about it, they don't even see it almost as a disease or a mutation or anything. They talk as though they're experiencing the effects of drugs, and while they're experiencing their hunger, they, well, either way, they feel no pain, but while they're experiencing their hunger, they feel nothing except the hunger, except the need to get their fix. And while they're trying to get something to eat, they have no remorse about what they may do in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man breaks his leg halfway off and doesn't completely remove it for another couple issues. Wolverine loses an arm. Luke Cage has an arm blown off. Iron Man is blown in half. And all these things happen and they feel no pain. But once they sober up, if you will, and have lucid moments. Spider-Man and Luke Cage especially realize this is bad that what we've done. We've turned on the people that trusted us. We've killed so many innocents and we're not likely to stop anytime soon. We have a problem and they just don't have any way to fix it. Reed Richards, of course, goes kind of the opposite direction and says, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. We need to get everyone infected. That's outside of this limited series, but kind of the way he looked at it one of my favorite characters to sort of examine this was sort of the monologue that hank pym has when he's cutting off black panther's leg to eat it he talks about how he knows this is wrong and he is still doing it partially because he knows he can't control his own addiction if he didn't just take off enough of t'challa to sat- satisfy himself he would probably actually bite t'challa and either devour him completely or infect him and then he wouldn't have food either way and he might even have more competition for food 
the sedative starts to wear off and T'Challa even asks Pym to kill him and he says no can do. And with everything that's gone wrong, Pym has some of the dialogue that I find most interesting in the whole series where he says that, that said, after he's talked to T'Challa a bit, I'm not going to let the drugs wear off so I can ask whether or not, ask whether or not he would volunteer for this. So I guess I am a monster. You want to hear something really scary? Well, something that scares me, at least. I like the way flesh tastes. Really, I do. If I were to somehow find a cure for whatever's going on with us, if things went back to the way they were, or as close as they could get, I think I'd still eat people. That terrifies me. Really. The scary part is that it's the only thing in all this that terrifies me. And I just sawed a friend's foot off so I can eat it. It was an interesting monologue, and as you said, I think this does... If this has a message at all, it is about addiction and the dangers and destructive powers of those addictions. I was actually kind of surprised that the Demon Limbaugh cover wasn't used as inspiration earlier than that within the series, but instead was just commissioned for the trade paperback. It almost makes me wonder if, you know, they'd read the online discussions and a lot of people had missed the addiction angle, so they were trying to give them a subtle reminder that that's really what they're talking about here. I mean, if you come in just looking for a fun zombie story and don't want to think about it in depth, you can miss it. But yeah, I, I had the, the same thought when I was trying to find out, are there any deeper meanings in here? You know, as soon as you pause and say, could they be t- sending a message in some way? That one does come up pretty crystal clear. Part of what goes with that is just how you forget who your friends and your enemies are when you're an addict. They don't have a whole lot of villains in their team up, but one who's clear is the Vulture who I thought was really interesting to see with the other zombies in the group, because like Iron Man, his powers are all technological. He doesn't have any special abilities, and yet he somehow survives just being infected and becomes a zombie and works with the people he used to fight all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a bit of sense in the Avengers working together because they're competing for food, and even Iron Man and Colonel America suggest breaking up so that they're not all in a large group if they get so desperate that they try to eat each other. And then when Galactus comes, it's pretty much just a group of villains fighting him. Uh, the Super Skrull, Stiltman, Rhino, Sabretooth, Juggernaut, Venom, the Lizard, Dr. Octopus, and Green Goblin are the very prominent ones. Oh, and the Red Skull are the very prominent ones who are already facing Galactus when he... But the other ones show up with their weapon to try to take them down. And yet, the Red Skull, even as crazed as they are of their addictions, he's he has an obsession even beyond that, where he's willing to go into a fight with Colonel America just because the Colonel has never had such an exploitable, visible weakness. In the first issue, Magneto removes the top half of Colonel America's head, or his skull, and part of his brain with it, with the colonel's shield, and he's still functioning. And the Red Skull uses the fight as an excuse to get in close to Colonel America so he can scoop his brains out and defeat him. And the Skull's head is then removed, and his last words are, so worth it just for this. He doesn't mind being destroyed as long as he gets to take Colonel America along with him. Yeah, it's clear that Kirkman and Phillips are having fun with this. When it's no holds barred, and they weren't, expecting to have a Marvel Zombies 2 following it. I mean, the, the ending that they had here certainly leaves space open for a sequel, but really feels more like it was intended as a joke than anything else. I mean, it was like 
if you've seen the original Back to the Future that ends with To Be Continued, that was a post-production decision. That was intended to be a joke ending to go in the future and talk about their kids. Michael J. Fox didn't know that the To Be Continued was on there until he rented it to watch with his kids. Because it wasn't in the screenings he saw during production. And he called the agent going, do you know what's going on with that? What? Why is that there? And it did well enough that they eventually did plan it out and make two and three. But anyway, back to the Marvel zombies. I, I think we've covered everything, but why we think it landed at this point in the countdown? Why did this, you know, why was it so well received or have such an impact that it was voted number 60? I think it landed this high because, or low, depending on how you want to look at it, it landed way higher than thousands, thousands of stories that didn't even make the countdown and even 15 that did, but not as high as others. All I can say is some of the stories that came after this are incredibly iconic. I I am surprised that this one and the next one I'm going to be reviewing, which is Deadpool Kills, I'm surprised at the order that they're in. And I think that might be indicative of the issue that you mentioned in an earlier podcast where a lot of this is just the might just be the short term memory of the readers. What really stood out for readers and especially readers more recently in Deadpool Kills ran for, I believe, four, four three or four four part miniseries more recently than this, but hasn't had anywhere near the impact that this has. Yeah, that was three four parters. Yep. And it's this has had a ridiculous amount of impact. It's, as we said, about eight, nine limited series. It's had crossovers with the main continuity. It's affected characters in the main continuity. It's given people fixes of, as we went back to addiction, of uh, characters that they don't get to see a whole lot of. Like I said, Next Wave appeared in the one issue. Aaron Stack, the Machine Man, was the star of a limited series. The Midnight Suns was were uh, a team again for a while. It really helped flesh out. I don't even remember if Armor had been established before this, but Armor is the third branch, like S.H.I.E.L.D. is the World Security Task Force, S.W.O.R.D. is the Interstellar Task Force, and Armor is the alternate reality. And this really gave Armor a chance to be understood or and fleshed out. And I can't remember if this was even when they first appeared. It also gave people, at one point or another, a chance to figure out, I had to pick up loose uh, threads from other stories, like we mentioned when Headpool, uh, the Deadpool from the zombie universe, came over He as a scout from the zombie universe. He was immediately confronted with Florida's superhero team, kills most of them, only two of them survive, and... Most of them were characters we hadn't heard from in a while, so it was just kind of a chance to say, hey, these characters still exist. Well, did exist. They're dead now. And it gives people, you know, just a chance to kind of, between the obvious what-if factor of what if these characters exist in different ways, we can figure out what's actually happening happening with quote-unquote established characters. Yeah, I could I could see that. It's, like we said, it, it was popular enough that it practically launched its own imprint. It is a fun read. I mean, I... I enjoyed this probably more than any other zombie story I've read, and that could be because of the intelligence of the zombies, because I didn't care for the original Ultimate Fantastic Four by Mark Miller story that introduced them, partly because of the way he was treating Reed Richards, as you mentioned earlier, and it's as we'll hear in later episodes of the podcast, I just have issues with the way Mark Miller handles virtually every scientist he's ever written. I 
But I enjoyed this even more than the first ten issues of The Walking Dead, which are the only issues of that series I've read. I'm just really not a zombie fan, but I enjoyed this. And I think that's a big part of why it landed here. It was a very pleasant surprise about how good this story actually was. Now, if you're focused on the 616 continuity, you know, if you're reading Deadpool, that's where the head comes from. If you're not reading Deadpool, you probably wouldn't notice its existence. Because aside from that Deadpool, I, when I know one of the Marvel Zombies miniseries is when the zombies show up in the 616, I'm unaware of any times the zombies appeared in the 616 that wasn't either branded Marvel Zombies or part of that one Deadpool run. Yeah, I think all of the, the 616 direct crossovers have all, almost all been in Zombies titled series. Oh, uh, there was Black Panther Volume 4 numbers 27 through 30, which was the Fantastic Four. This was when, um, Reed and Sue had kind of left the team for a while to try to reconcile following Civil War. So the team was Black Panther, Storm, Human Torch, and The Thing. And that version of the Fantastic Four was teleported to the Marvel Zombies universe and they encountered the zombie Galacti. And I do actually have a couple of those issues. I can't remember if I have the full run. I just remember it being kind of interesting seeing the Black Panther interact with himself and the two of them just looking at the way the other's life has gone. Because one of the first things that happens here, we didn't really discuss it in the plot. Well, it doesn't happen right away, but one of the things that happens we didn't discuss in the plot summary was that Black Panther marries one of the acolytes. And it's I believe her name is Lisa Hendricks. And when they come back to Earth five years later in the timeline, she brings along their son, their child, Kashamba. So he has a kid in this reality and Storm isn't turned into a zombie, zombie and then killed. So it's just sort of a there, but for the grace of ghoulishness, go I moment. Yeah. So did you have any closing thoughts? Any other comments about the series? Well, yeah, I, I did kind of find it interesting just some of the things they did with the biology they raised a couple questions of the zombies right away there were four things that i kind of noticed were kind of weird one was that inexplicably nobody has lips once they turn into a zombie i don't know if lips are supposed to be just fairly thin flesh and therefore easier to rot off but i wouldn't think they would rot as quickly as they do in this yeah i suspect that's coming less from a sci-fi era area and more from sean phillips saying don't they look scarier when you could see that much more of their teeth? Yeah. And then they don't digest anymore, but they still hunger. That was kind of interesting. Uh, their insides are caustic enough to break down what they eat. They kind of established that later in issues, toward issues three and four. The zombies figure out that they can cut holes in their stomachs and take out what they've got inside and re-eat it. And it doesn't bother them, but their bodies still break it down. So even though they're not really digesting properly, the amount of the food they have is reduced every time, but it does help sate them. Daredevil, as I mentioned, has a steel girder sent through his chest, and that gets rid of his heart. And the weird thing to me is then he he says, the only complaint I have is that I've got some swelling in my ankles. And Hank Pym looks at it and says, well, yeah, there, since your blood's not pumping, it's all accumulating in your legs. We could puncture holes in your ankles to drain out the blood, but yeah, that's what's happening to you. And I'm like, well, does that mean the rest of their hearts are beating? Is that why he's the only one complaining about blood in the ankles? Because logically, everyone who still has legs should be having the same malady. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their hearts have to be beating. And then uh, the the last thing was that 
the the standard go to for killing a zombie for years has been destroy the brain or damage the brain at least and one of the first things they do is as i mentioned earlier magneto severs the top portion of colonel america's skull and his brain is still partially there and they say oh don't don't worry about that uh depending on what part of the brain is damaged the human body can still function yeah even to the point where you know later on they're saying we don't even know what kills us and iron man throws out maybe the brain and colonel america is going um hello over here yeah even that's not guaranteed yeah so it's closing thoughts i have like I said, it's the most enjo- enjoyable zombie story I've read, so if you're interested in zombies and Marvel Comics, it's worth checking out. But, yeah, I think that's about it. There's, you know, analogies or metaphors to addiction, and that seems to be about about the extent of it, right? That's It's just, it's basically a fun romp that's had some impact on the Marvel Universe, but nothing on the scale of, you know, your civil wars or your secret invasions. You can read certain books, and we'll see the impact of this miniseries. But you can't just pick up any book and see the impact of this miniseries. Which I think is nice because it's not vital to understand where everything in the main continuity is. Uh, you can just sit back and enjoy this series in one sitting and then disregard it for most of your reading pleasure. I mean, if you go through Civil War and the stories that go afterward, they affect so much, and so much of where the world is today in comics are affected by all of the crossovers that they've done. They they have such a huge status quo change every year that it's sometimes every six months that it's just very difficult to keep track of where everyone is. But this one, one, it's easy to understand because it seems to just be there for fun, so you don't have to worry too much. And two, if you do, it's easy to say there are three camps. The heroes who were completely destroyed, the heroes who were turned to zombies, and the heroes who are somehow hidden. Yeah. Okay. So, Jim, I just want to thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. And uh, for those of you reading along at home, next week we're going to be discussing Iron Man Armor Wars, or Stark Wars, depending on when you're looking at the title of the collected edition or the original issues. This is the first volume of Iron Man, issues 225 through 231. It's been collected as Iron Man Armor Wars a couple of ways. I think there's premier hardcovers and trade paperbacks. It was on the GitCorp Iron Man DVD-ROM, and it's available through Marvel Digital Unlimited, and I believe it's also available through Comixology. All right, so feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher and share links with your friends who you think may enjoy it. And thank you for listening. Hey there, True Believers. I'm Claire. I'm Robin. I'm Matt. And I'm Mel. And we're here today to tell you all about the Defenders podcast. The Defenders? Isn't that the lawyer drama with Jim Belushi and Jerry O'Connell that got cancelled a couple of years back? Yes, but that's not what we're covering. Oh, the 60s series about the father-son lawyers that starred Mike Brady and the president from Superman 2? No, no, it's about a Marvel superhero team. I got this. It's that team with Doctor Strange, Namor the Submariner, and the Incredible Hulk, right? Well, in the comics it started out as that, but really there were many different combinations of superheroes on the team. So no lawyers? Well, actually the first and my favourite hero will be covering is Daredevil, lawyer Matt Murdock by day, crime fighter by night. So Daredevil is going to be one show. What are the other shows about? After Daredevil, we'll be covering aka Jessica Jones, 
Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and the series where they all finally team up, The Defenders. Oh, I get why we're called The Defenders Podcast now. And where do we watch these shows when they premiere? Every series will be premiering on Netflix, starting with Daredevil on April the 10th. Sweet! I'm gonna binge watch! Absolutely not, only I get to, and then I'm going to guide you guys through the series week by week. Aww! Watch along with us, The Defenders Podcast, brought to you by the DVM Podcast Empire. Find us at dvmpe.com. Excellent!